Specialty Story, session number 100. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am your host here every week where I get to talk to an amazing physician. And I'm excited that this is episode 100. I hope we have another 100 coming to you soon. So stay tuned, stay subscribed, and let's check out our episode today. Today, we are talking to Dr. Kara Connolly, a transgender medicine specialist. Now, she's a pediatric endocrinologist by training in an academic setting and has been out of training now for six years. And we talk today about transgender medicine, what it is, why we have it, and why it's important for transgender patients, and so much more. We start the conversation by talking to Kara about what got her interested in pediatric endocrinology and transgender medicine. So I always knew I wanted to be a pediatrician, went to medical school with the plan and the goal to be, to go into pediatrics. Um, and it wasn't until I actually started residency in pediatrics, just pretty much set on being a hospitalist, a pediatric hospitalist and working in the hospital. But after I did my first inpatient wards rotation, I realized I missed the clinic setting a lot and then decided I was probably going to just go into general pediatrics. But then when I did my second year um, pediatric endocrinology rotation, I realized that that was the specialty that that really fit everything that I was looking for. So I did my rotation as a second year, and it was right around that time that applications were due for fellowship. The pediatric endocrinology wasn't part of the match at that time, so it was kind of a rolling admission into fellowship. Um, and it worked out well for me because I was a late applicant, mm-hmm. but I was able to secure a spot for my fellowship. And then started um, pediatric endocrinology fellowship. And it wasn't until I was in my fellowship that I discovered my passion for uh, working with transgender youth. And it was just in my clinical encounters, meeting patients in the clinic and um, recognizing the different kinds of needs of this population and that there really weren't a lot of providers that were able to meet the clinical needs. And in our clinic, we were feeling like we had to reinvent the wheel wheel every time we saw a transgender patient. So I decided when I was finishing up fellowship and joining the faculty that I wanted to make that the focus of my career and um, started up the the, Dorn, the, gen, the gender clinic for pediatric patients. Um, and now I'm the medical director of our hospital's gender clinic. Awesome. I want to dive back into the kind of rotation that you went on during your residency, what was it about endocrine that you're like, oh, this, this checks all of the boxes? I, I've, I was always interested in endocrine and hormones. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to be excited about the diabetes portion, but then I started working in the diabetes clinic and seeing patients with diabetes and realizing that I really actually did love that part of pediatric endocrinology. What I really appreciated about the specialty was being able to work with um, high complexity, um, chronic health conditions, building long-term relationships with patients, and being able to work with patients of all ages from 
infancy all the way through young adulthood, and also getting a nice uh, combination of inpatient and outpatient medicine. And then when it came to being exposed to transgender medicine, what what was it about those patients, uh, again, that kind of was like, oh, like, this is what I want? I think it was, I was really inspired by the patients and their families and the, the, the hoops they had to, to go through to access care and how difficult and challenging that was, um, that I felt passionate about trying to make that easier and to make healthcare more accessible. Um, so it was, it was probably, and, and recognizing that it was right in the realm of what we do, pediatric endocrinology, that it naturally felt like we could build, build what we did to be able to, to help more patients access the care that they needed. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good transgender medicine specialist? Um, I think communication is probably the most important piece, uh, being a good communicator. And that, that goes for pediatric endocrinology as well. But being a good listener, um, being able to be open to hear people's stories and what their needs are and have an open mind about trying to help them access what they need. Um, with pediatric endocrinology, I think being able to tailor conversations based on who is listening. So whether it's the parents of the patient or the patient themselves at different age points and what their level of, of development is um, and being able to have a similar conversation and get the same points across to a 10 year old as a 13 year old as a 18 year old. Um, so I think being able to figure out how to communicate and communicate effectively is, is the most important piece. As, as a transgender medicine specialist, are you, are you seeing these patients as their primary care provider mostly, or how, how are they coming to you and, and in what kind of capacity are you treating them? That is a, that's a great question. I think one of the things that's been kind of in shift and is going to continue to shift is where patients are accessing this care for, and I think it's, it's very different for pediatric patients compared to adult patients. Currently we see patients as specialty care as their specialty providers, and they are referred to us often by their primary care providers who likely have, have not had training in this area because it's not been something that's, that was included in, in our, our medical training. I, I didn't have any access to um, transgender medicine when I was a medical student, and that wasn't that long ago. So it's all, it is still relatively new for many pediatricians, um, some family medicine providers. A lot of family medicine providers are gaining more experience because of their work with adult transgender patients, but many pediatricians are still wanting to refer to specialty care. And what we do is part of pediatric endocrinology. One of the treatments that we offer is called pubertal suppression, or sometimes people refer to it as puberty blockers. They're medications that pause puberty, and we use them for patients who are not transgender who go into puberty too early. But this category of medications we can access for transgender youth who 
don't want to go through the puberty, physical puberty changes that are not aligned with their gender identity. So we can use these medications and our specialty has a lot of experience in prescribing and managing these medications. And then same thing with prescribing hormones. It's just something that we do. We prescribe hormones for a lot of different patients, um, those many patients who are not transgender. And so it's just part of what, what we do. So, but a lot, the patients will come to see us pretty frequently, often every three to four months as we are prescribing hormones and starting puberty. And so we develop relationships with them that are sometimes closer than their primary care providers because we're seeing them so often and um, really getting to know the patients and the family as well. And I really appreciate that that piece. But for young adult and adult patients, the most of the time they're accessing their transgender patients, most of the time they're accessing hormones through their primary care providers. And I feel like that is the appropriate setting for that to happen because it's just one other, just a medication that their primary care provider can prescribe. And so there aren't a lot of patients who are accessing, older patients who are accessing this care through adult endocrinology, but there are some adult endocrinologists that, that are um, really active in, in transgender health. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people listening to this may may not agree with um, the kind of the transgender movement in this country and, a, and around the world, and they may question like why why do we need transgender medicine? What what is a transgender medicine specialist doing, and and what skill set are you bringing that a quote unquote regular primary care doctor or regular endocrinologist can't do? I mean, right now we're referring to it as transgender health, transgender medicine, primarily because there aren't enough trained providers to to be able to provide the care that is needed uh, for this patient population. The in in the future, it will be part of medical training, and will be will we will be able to have more primary care providers. Uh, with the knowledge and expertise to be able to do the care. The care is not very complicated. The pediatric care is a little more complicated, but um, in adults, it's prescribing hormones and monitoring for side effects, which are very low and rare. So it's, it's really not very complex. It's, it's, and it's easy to, to get the training that's needed to become an, an expert in in this area, so I think it's just about a matter of getting patient, people trained up. This be, being a taking care of this population is it's critical because transgender people around the country, the world, but especially in this country, are are not are not being are not able to access um, a lot of the rights and healthcare that. A lot of other populations are. So I think it's really important that we kind of can take this on and, and move it forward and make sure that we can provide affirming care to all patients, whether they're transgender or cisgender, which are, uh, refers to somebody who does not identify as transgender. Their ident gender identity matches the sex that was assigned to them at birth. So we need to treat transgender patients and give them the same kind of access to health care as we do our cisgender patients. It sounds like, as you're talking, it sounds like a similar kind of pattern of what we had to do as healthcare professionals with HIV and AIDS when that first kind of came to light of, of 
healthcare providers kind of not understanding what's going on or, or potentially not wanting to treat those patients. And then you had specialists to kind of pick up that slack and tell the medical schools and the education that came along with increasing exposure and knowledge. It sounds like the transgender medicine and, and that specific knowledge is following that same kind of arc. Yes, I think it is very similar. And I think it really is a matter of um, more and more and more and more people, definitely in the healthcare um, field and medical education, but also society just um, being just gaining awareness of what this means and how important it is to be able to provide basic healthcare needs to all patients. And recognizing the really significant disparities that transgender patients face by not be, being able to have their basic health care needs met. There's, there's been extensive studies looking at and, and demonstrating high rates of transgender people, uh, patients, not accessing basic health care, just even primary care and, and preventive care because of the fear that they will uh, be rejected by their healthcare provider or their healthcare clinic setting, and and you know thinking about that's just it's unacceptable to to that they have to face that kind of discrimination. So we just need to build awareness and recognize that providing healthcare to a transgender patient is just the same as providing healthcare to any other patient. And there may be some special skills around prescribing hormones, but that's easily accessible and easily gained. And there are a lot of training opportunities to, for people who are already in practice to be able to, to get those skills. Describe a typical day for you. Um, I really appreciate this question because um, I don't really have a typical day. And I think that's one of the things that I love about my job. I, I work in an academic setting. So that means that I do clinical care, I do medical education and I also do a little bit of research and I love, love that aspect of my job. So um, my clinical care is in the outpatient setting. I see patients in the outpatient clinic of our hospital, but I also travel to different cities for outreach clinic to be able to provide care, specialty pediatric endocrinology care to patients outside of the major city that I live in um, who don't have access to a specialist. So I travel to three different cities uh, periodically um, and with different frequencies. I also provide care via telehealth. So I sit in my office and see patients that are sitting in a clinic in another city and we're communicating through a camera. Um, and then I also see patients in the hospital when I'm on call. So we'll, we have an inpatient service, mostly with uh, children with type one diabetes, but we have a, we do consults with other um other services in the hospital. So that's my, my clinical care. And each day is a little bit different in terms of where I'm seeing patients or if I'm, if I just have a, an ad, admin day or non-clinical day on my, in, during my non-clinical time, I, I have a, have some scheduled roles with the undergraduate medical education and work with medical students in their preclinical years. And then I also coordinate the rotation for pediatric endocrinology for students and residents that are rotating with us. So I work with students and residents, residents in that capacity as well, and also do didactic teaching. My obviously my main focus of teaching is in transgender health now. So I do teaching in our hospital and then throughout the state um, with different types of groups of of people. And my research is primarily also focused in transgender health and 
primarily mentoring students and residents and, and pediatric endocrinology fellows who are have already completed their residency and are doing the last step of training to be a pediatric endocrinologist. I'm helping and oversee projects that they're that they're doing in our field. So you're in an academic setting. For you, what was the decision to stay in an academic setting after your training versus going out to the community? It was it was very easy. And that's just because of my passion around teaching and education and realizing that in an academic setting that was going to give me the best opportunity to do that and make that part of my career. I I love seeing patients. Uh, that's definitely my primary interest is is the clinical work, but I didn't want that to be all that I did. I I felt that I would really feel that there was something missing for my career if all I was doing was seeing patients and doing clinical work. So I wanted to be able to incorporate the education piece and and research into my career. So the academic setting is the best place to do that. Do you have to take a lot of call as a transgender medicine specialist? Well, I take call as a pediatric endocrinologist. We really don't get any calls. There's nothing that I I find on my on-call time for transgender medicine. Um, so as a pediatric endocrinologist, we our group takes call evenly. We do a week of call at a time, Friday to Friday. And basically what that means is that we're the main person that somebody will call if they have questions about any any of their patients primary care providers for example or if there's questions that are patients that are already in our that have already been seen in our program have have questions about their care at home that they can reach a pediatric endocrinologist on call so i what call looks like for me is i wear my pager 24/7 and on the weekend we usually go in to see into the hospital to see patients um, usually just for a couple of hours and then i get to come home and live my life for the rest of the the day and the weekend and just wear my pager i really don't get very many calls so it doesn't it doesn't often feel that it's um, interrupting my home life um, and then during the week can get pretty busy because we have we do the inpatient uh, consult consult team and primary team and we also still do clinics. So the, the, the call weeks are busy, but the nights are not too bad. And part of that is because in an academic setting, we have pediatric endocrinology fellows, as I mentioned, and they're taking the first calls from the patients who are calling um, during the day and at night, for example. So the, the attending doesn't get a lot of those, of those calls. And I do about nine or 10 weeks of call a year. For the student who's listening to this, the medical student who's listening to this going, oh, wow, transgender medicine, I think this sounds awesome. I definitely um, potentially have a friend or family member who's been affected by this or lack of access uh, as a transgender patient. And and they're like, yes, this is what I want to do. But they're like, oh, if I have to write another insulin sliding scale, I'm going to shoot myself. Um, is there potential for someone to do transgender medicine full-time as the only thing they do? Oh yeah, definitely. I, so I should mention that we, I do transgender medicine as a pediatric endocrinologist and see pediatric patients, but a lot of the transgender specialists in the country are trained as adolescent medicine providers. And many of the, the, the youth gender clinics around the country are run by adolescent medicine providers. So that's somebody who wanted to do more general adolescent pediatric care, but then also have a special interest in, in transgender care. And 
And then it's up to the individual to decide how, what percentage of their practice they want to be focused on transgender patients versus other adolescent medicine things. So I think that there's a, it really can vary in terms of how much time you want to dedicate to certain patient populations. The other thing is there's so many different ways of being, of getting to being a provider that, that cares for transgender patients. And as I've been kind of trying to mention is, is that transgender patients are, as we continue to build capacity for more trained providers and acceptance and understanding of the needs of this patient population, it won't feel like such a specialized field. It will feel like something like being able to prescribe um, lipid lowering medications for somebody with high cholesterol. Yeah. I think it's, I think it, it, it will, and is moving in that direction, but until we keep, until we get there, we need to have strong advocates in the field that can push things forward and help to build capacity for more providers and, and more acceptance in society and understanding of what the needs are. Do you feel like you have enough time outside of the clinic and the hospital for, for life outside that world? I do. Um, I think one of the best things about this specialty, pediatric endocrinology, is the lifestyle. Our patients, I like to say, are relatively low acuity, but high complexity. I really like that about it. Um, our patients get sick. Um, often our diabetes patients will get sick and end up in the ICU. But um, but generally, our patients do well. They They stay healthy, and that's our role is to help them stay healthy. I like that aspect of the field. And, um, I feel like it was very conducive to being able to have a family. I, um, have two young children and get to spend a lot of time with them, even though I work full time, I, I do miss out on some of the school activities that are during the day. If they're not, if I, if I can't plan really far ahead for them, because I have patients that are already scheduled, but I have a lot of vacation time that I can use if I know about activities far enough in advance. And I should also mention when I'm on call at night, I have never had to go back into the hospital. So I feel like that's very different from many other specialties. If Even if a patient is in the hospital and very sick, we have residents that are seeing the patient or the ICU um, team is, is there as well. And I think that that part is very nice. I, I get to sleep in my bed every night. <laughs> that, that definitely helps. Yeah. What does the training path look like to become a transgender medicine specialist? Um, so it really depends on what specialty somebody wants to go into. And I think that if someone who's listening to this is interested in transgender medicine, the first question to ask is what patient population, specifically age, would are you interested in, in working with? And what other skills do you hope to attain and have and work on? So I, I, it's different for me because I went into the field of pediatric endocrinology before even having a clue about transgender medicine and then discovered it. But, um, I always knew I wanted to work with, with pediatric patients. So if somebody wanted to do, do the same path that I did, it's, uh, three years of pediatrics residency and then three years of pediatric endocrinology fellowship, and then, and then you're then you're done. And um, in pediatric endocrinology fellowship, you will you will likely get training in providing care to transgender youth. Um, it's one of the things that the Pediatric Endocrine Society is is actively working on, 
is building a curriculum for pediatric endocrinology fellows so that we can have a standardized training for for that population to then be set up to finish fellowship and then be able to go on and, and continue practicing transgender care for youth. That's what it looks like for pediatric endocrinology. For somebody who might like the idea of providing uh, transgender health care in the primary care setting, then that might look like somebody who does a family medicine residency and then doesn't do any uh, subspecialty training and becomes a family medicine doc who can see youth and adults and provide transgender care in the primary care setting. That might also look the same for somebody who wants to be a general pediatrician and be able to provide this care in their clinics, pediatrics, three years of pediatrics residency, and then and then they'll be able to practice. Um, the surgical care, I, I think, is much more specialized and does require additional training. And because as of yet, that piece is not formally um, incorporated into the residency training, as far as I know, for the the, sur the surgical specialties working with transgender patients. But there are special training fellowships for being able to provide gender-affirming surgical care that people can access after finishing their surgical residency trainings. So it sounds like from the more of the diagnostic, the non-surgical side of things, there's really no accredited, no board certification or anything at this point for transgender medicine. Correct. Okay. There are groups that, um, or organizations that are helpful to be involved with, like the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH. It's an organization of professionals dedicated to providing this care. And um, that's a good organization to be aware of and to get involved with for, for folks who are interested in, in being active in transgender healthcare. How competitive is for, for your base specialty, I should say, uh, pediatric endocrinology? How competitive is it to match into that? Um, so it's to match into pediatric endocrinology from general pediatrics. It's, it's not very competitive at this time. Um, it's, it is, there are more trainings positions than there are applicants, at least for the last few years. So this is a great field to enter if you kind of want your pick as far as training program and, and where you want to live. The pediatrics portion can be competitive depending on which programs you want to apply for, just like any other specialty. Um, so, but once the, the pediatrics residency training is complete, then getting into a pediatric endocrinology fellowship position um, is is not difficult. As a transgender medicine specialist, are, are there opportunities to even further subspecialize your practice? I know some pedi general pediatricians who live in more rural areas of the state that I communicate with who want to be leaders in transgender medicine, the transgender medicine field for their area and their town. So they're, by word of mouth, uh, more and more patients are accessing care through their clinics, and they are working to kind of get specialty, not qu quote training, not really formal training, but trying to um, attend presentations and talks and trainings where they can get more of those skills. So that I would say that that's an opportunity 
is if somebody's already in primary care and, and wants to learn more and become specialized, kind of a specialist in transgender health from the primary care standpoint, that that's possible. But in pediatric endocrinology, when we're providing care to transgender patients, there's like I said, the, the pubertal suppression medications that we use, those are that's something that we prescribe on a regular basis for lots of different conditions. And so it's not really specialized training. Um, and I can't really think of it's not I, I wouldn't be able to, for example, go and um, do subspecialize in gender affirming surgical care, for example, because that would require a whole new kind of residency track um, to be able to do that. Yeah. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this, do you see any negative bias towards them in transgender medicine? No, absolutely not. I I think that um, we, in pediatrics, we have a lot of DO physicians and pediatric endocrinologists, pediatric subspecialties. I I don't see any, any problems with with them being able to access the training. Good. What's something common that that you speak to a lot when you're talking to primary care providers about transgender medicine and what you're doing day in and day out to help their patients? I think the main thing is helping primary care providers and their clinics understand how to create an affirming environment, an affirming care environment with the knowledge that many people who identify as gender diverse or transgender are are anxious about going into the clinical setting and not knowing if they will be respected. Um, So just helping them understand that the basic things like using the right name and pronouns, how to ask the questions, how to make sure that all of the people that that patient is going to encounter from the front desk staff to the medical assistant to the nurses are being consistent in being being affirming and using the right name and pronouns. That's that's number one. The other thing is that is just being sensitive about physical exams. That goes for every patient. I think it's really important. Uh, consent is really important for all parts of the exam. But patients who identify as transgender or gender diverse are often uh, really anxious or uncomfortable about the chest exam or the genital exam. And so really helping them understand what the purpose of that would be, um, if it actually is necessary at all, and then making sure that they are giving their permission and consent before doing that part of the exam. I think it's really important for all patients, but definitely transgender adolescents. Um, And then the last thing is making sure that primary care providers are Focusing on when a patient comes in who identifies as transgender and is comes into clinic for any reason, um, focusing on the reason why they're there. If they're there to talk about wanting to start hormones, gender affirming hormones, or wanting a referral to a specialist, then that's specific to their transgender care. But if they come in with a sore throat, then it's not often necessary to ask questions about their gender identity and transgender care if it's not pertinent to that chief complaint that day. And I think that that's one thing that is important for emergency uh, room providers to recognize as well is really just asking the questions that are pertinent to the reason why they are presenting. What other specialties do you work the closest with? I work with general pediatrics, adolescent medicine, um, a lot. I look, I work a l- really closely with psychology, um, in 
with a lot of our patient populations. So um, our transgender youth, but also our youth with diabetes and, and other, other populations, other conditions um, and psychiatry. I, and in, in transgender health, we have a, a team of many clinical providers that provide care for all ages across the lifespan. So we have pediatric care, um, we have adult primary care and adult surgical or surgical care as well. So I work closely with um, the primary care providers in family medicine, internal medicine, and then OBGYN, urology, and plastic surgery. We have an integrated team and um, multidisciplinary care um, planning meetings and and other meetings around um, our our program, our transgender program. For the future pediatricians listening to this, what is something that they can do to start to potentially have a dialogue with a patient who who may feel like they're not the gender they were assigned at birth and they don't know how to talk about it? Maybe they're, they're in an environment with their parents who and they just don't feel comfortable talking about it. How do you, what would you say to a, a pediatrician who... Um, may not have, may not be exposed to a lot of transgender patients to, to start to have that dialogue with, with patients? Yeah, that's a great question. One of the things is that um, a lot of clinics use written forms to, at least for the um, well child, well adolescent visits where youth can write things down. That's one easy venue where the youth can write things down separate from their parents, separate from actually verbally saying who they are and how they identify. So that's there to give to the medical assistant, for example, and then to the healthcare provider. Um, and it's important on those kinds of forms to leave it as open as, as possible so that they don't feel like they have to check boxes. So not having a male female box for gender identity, um, and specifying gender identity separate from sex assigned at birth, I think is important too. But if we, there's just a blank line that says, what is your gender identity? What pronouns do you use? Then that's, that's a, a good starting point. And especially if all patients are being asked those questions. Um, verbally, I think that pediatricians can just ask the youth. And most, pedi- most pediatricians will um, have t- a portion of the of the visit with the adolescent patient alone without their parents to talk about um, gender identity, sexuality, um, alcohol and drug use, for example, and and other, other topics. And I think just coming out and and asking um, how how do you identify? What's your gender identity? Um, Do you feel comfortable with your gender identity? Do you have any questions? And just, just opening the space to have that dialogue and, making that just a routine part of every well adolescent visit will start, it'll start to feel more natural so that all patients are being asked those questions. And my kid's pediatrician starts asking when they're three and four, are you, are she asks them, are you a boy or a girl? Um, which I think is, um, pretty, it's simple, a simple way of opening that conversation to very young children, um, but they come to, to expect the, those questions. And if that's, those are the questions that they've been getting since as, lo- as long as they can remember coming to the pediatrician, it's something that they'll be expecting to get and know that this is a place where they can have these conversations when they're teenagers. Yeah. Do you feel like it's, it's an interesting question? Do you feel like, are you a boy or a girl? Is that sufficient or do you feel like a boy or a girl? Is there better language potentially? 
Um, she asks them, are you a boy or a girl? Mm-hmm. And, um, it's, and it's, and you see what, what answer you get. And yeah. it's not so much the feel, um, it's, are you, what yeah. are you? Okay. And I think that that, there are times when that's the first place where young children are able to say who they are. Um, maybe because they aren't in an environment at home where they can say who they are. So the pediatrician has a really, um, or, you know, family medicine provider, pediatrician, who's, whoever's seeing these kids has a really important job to, to be able to start these conversations and help kids feel that it's a safe place to talk about who they are. hundred percent. Yeah. Are there any, special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for a transgender medicine specialist? I, I was thinking about that question clinically. I can't think of any opportunities, but definitely um, tons of opportunities for advocacy and um, getting closely involved with community partners so that we can have resources outside of the clinic setting for gender diverse youth. Um, and that's one of the things that I get excited about is being able to know what resources are in our community, um, support groups, for example, for parents and youth and, um, how we can closely partner with them so that if youth are showing up to these community partners locations, as kind of their first stop and not knowing where to go next, that they know that we exist and that we can provide affirming care. So I think that's, that part is really important. Yeah. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into transgender medicine? Oh boy. How rewarding it is. I think really building relationships with patients and their parents in a way that many patients haven't been able to, to do before is really unique and special it's easy to feel like the we as the providers are becoming part of their their families. And that's just one of the things that I love about my specialty. It's something that's really important to me. And, and the reason why I went into medicine was being able to develop these kinds of relationships with people. But it's it's really unique for this specific population. And it's so rewarding to be able to see many youth just begin to just come in as, as themselves and feel that they can finally live as who they are because they are being accepted by their family and their school and their healthcare providers. And they are able to live more comfortably in their bodies. It's just the most rewarding thing and so much more rewarding than I ever thought I was going to encounter when I was going into medicine. Um, The care is also very hard and complex. And it is incredible how many barriers we face in terms of getting insurance coverage for some of the basic needs of these patients. And that is something that I really had no idea about, but it is probably what takes up maybe 30 to 40% of the Mm. care that I provide to transgender patients is battling insurance companies just to get approval for basic things like pubertal suppression and hormones. It's gotten better and our state Medicaid plan will cover all transgender related medications and surgeries, but a lot of the commercial insurance plans won't. And even if they are, if they do cover certain treatments there, they can be very costly. And so somebody who has a high deductible plan or high copays may not be able to afford them. So that 
that part is very complicated and we have to have a specialized team of people who can work on that aspect. We have a, a full-time authorization, medical medication authorization specialist to focus on getting authorizations for not just our transgender patients, but um, just for to get medications that the physicians prescribe for their patients. I love our healthcare system. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that's one thing that I'm hopeful will change in the future. And I was thinking about what are some things that um, any major changes coming to the the specialty. Mm -hmm. I'm hopeful that the insurance barriers will eventually become (laughs) less so. (laughs) Very hopeful. All right. Yes. That's good. Uh, What do you like the most about being a transgender medicine specialist? Um, I think what I said already, just really being able to develop meaningful relationships with patients and getting to be a place where they can come and know that every conversation is safe and um, they can ask any questions that they have. I, I find that really, um, really meaningful and rewarding, um, getting to work with families and help the families overcome resistance and fears that they sometimes experience around supporting their child's identity that I find really meaningful and rewarding as well, because if we can help the parents understand their child and how to support and affirm their child, then we see those family units come back into clinic communicating in ways that they've never communicated before and their relationships are improved. And that piece feels just feels so rewarding as well. Um, in terms of pediatric endocrinology, I, I love being able to work with patients of all ages um, and getting to work with kids with, with chronic health conditions, um, really getting to know them over the years, help them grow and, um, and get, getting to take care of a lot of different kinds of um, hormone issues. That it can be pretty complex, but but interesting to to kind of solve the puzzle and and figure things out. I'm assuming what you like the least we've already talked about with dealing with insurance companies, but uh, I'll let you answer that one separately. Yeah, that's that's definitely one of the things. The other thing is that um, the electronic health record, which I really do appreciate because of the ways that it has improved communication amongst providers and between patients and their providers. I think that the electronic health record can and does a lot of really wonderful things, but it's pretty cumbersome and can take up a lot of time. And so we have to be really strategic around the ways that we use it. And I think that we're, I kind of feel that we're at the point right now where we've we see how much that it can do and it's not being used in the most efficient way. Um, so that, that part, the having to be on the electronic health record for a large portion of my time, not just charting on a patient that I've seen in clinic, but then getting in all this information about the patient in between clinic visits, like lab results or questions from the parents, um, or questions from other providers that can get really cumbersome and busy and there isn't enough time built into our schedules generally to be able to address those questions but a lot of that is fixable um, where we are building our teams so that we have more medical assistants and more nurses that can help to 
triage those questions and those issues. And I think if that, if, if that is done efficiently, that, that piece can get better. How are the electronic medical records with helping the staff and the whole team identify the patients properly? Do they, do they have good, clear communication of how the patient, the, like their pronouns and how they like to be identified? It's, that is a great question. Generally, no, it's not great. Um, it totally depends on which electronic healthcare system or health record system you're using and, and then which version of it. So we use Epic, um, in our hospital and we just had an upgrade so that the gender identity is the preferred name or affirmed name, um, of the patient is the most visible versus their legal name and that the gender identity is visible as, as well. And, um, anyone who's accessing those who who interfaces with a patient will be able to see that information that's been entered so that they will use will not misgender the patient or use the wrong name the problem is that pronouns are not visible on the main screen at least for the version that we are using and i know that that will that change will come but that's that's one deficiency that we have now and then there's plenty of healthcare systems that don't have this current version where the legal name is the only one that's displayed and the, the gender identity is not visible. It's just the sex assigned at birth. And the, there's confusion around, you know, if somebody's cisgender or transgender. And so I think that that is a big piece that could be improved upon. Yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a transgender medicine specialist? Oh, absolutely. I, I say now that I, it's so interesting though, because I did not know that this is where I would be when I was in medical school or even residency. And I'm so thankful and grateful that I discovered this field because I love it so much. I love going to work every day. I love the people that I work with. I love my patients. Um, it really brings me a lot of joy and there's a medicine is hard. It's, it's very time consuming and energy consuming. Um, and self-care is really important, but I think even more important than that is finding something that you absolutely love, that you feel excited to get up and do in the morning. And this field is, has given that to me. And I never knew that, 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 that this is what, where I would end up. But I tell people that I have, with all of the work that I want to do and research and education to make the healthcare setting more affirming for transgender youth and to reduce barriers to care and improve access to care. I have that I have enough work to fill my entire career and I have a long career ahead of me, many years left. Um, and it's exciting to feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on a path and I can see different, have, we have different goals in mind and um, that I'm working towards and it's rewarding and, and fulfilling to know that there's, plenty of work to, to fill my entire career in this field. Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med or the medical student who is now becoming aware of and potentially interested in transgender medicine? Yeah. The main thing is to find a mentor or an advisor, somebody in the field that you respect who is doing something that you, you might, you think you might be interested in. And this goes for any specialty. I think it's so valuable to have a mentor in, in the field that can help you really understand what that field is like. Um, it may involve shadowing them in clinic or 
doing a scholarly project with them um, and just getting to understand what their life is like and if that is something that you want to pursue. Um, that person can also be really valuable in helping you make connections with other people, either in the same field or in different fields. If you decide you want to do something differently, um, networking with um, national providers in other places and helping you build relationships with with people in places where you may want to do training. So I think there's so much value put on face-to-face contact with people in any way that you can, because it's so hard to get swallowed up in the paper of applications and really not without having the ability to, to show who you are as a person and the skills that you bring. And I think that's, that piece is so valuable in transgender health. So finding a mentor, I think is the most important All right, there you have it. Another great episode. So much great information about transgender medicine. If you are going into primary care, whether pediatrics or family medicine, internal medicine, and you will be taking care of transgender patients, this is so important to understand their specific needs, their specific fears, and what they struggle with when it comes to accessing healthcare. So hopefully this is the first step Or maybe it's not the first step, but one step on your journey to understanding transgender patients a little bit better so you can provide the best care possible to them. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.